Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. Hello and welcome to Codish. Uh, today we are going to talk about how we do documentation at Heroku with Stephen Barlow. Uh, hello. I am, hello. I am Charlie Gleason and I look after all things design and brand at Heroku. And uh, Stephen, maybe you want to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm Stephen Barlow. I am a, quote, lead strategist for the Heroku Dev Center. I don't really know what that means either, but... Basically, I spend most of my day looking at the documentation uh, that we offer and organizing it, editing it, and working with other members of the Heroku team to make it as up-to-date and findable and readable as possible. <laughs> well, uh, first off, I guess one of the things that I'm always curious about um, articulating better is um, documentation and, and why it's so important, I guess, the value the value of good documentation. Yeah. And then on the flip side to that, uh, the pain or the impact of, of bad or, or outdated documentation. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Sure. So um, documentation, it's always valuable no matter what your product is. The type of product you have influences a great deal just how important that documentation is. So a lot of end user products like iPhone, other things like that, you imagine that if you're making this product for anyone and everyone and that you've made it well, oftentimes somebody can operate it without looking at the documentation ever because they open it up, they turn it on, whatever it is. Maybe it's a can opener and it just sort of works because it does one thing. It does it really well, or the user interface is just generally pretty straightforward, but there are some products that are sophisticated enough because of what they do that documentation is part of the product because no one could be expected to use this product without reading something about it. And that doesn't necessarily say something negative about the product. It just says something about the complexity of what the product is trying to do. So Mm. the nature of some products is just that they need to have documentation to go with them because no one could be expected to use the product without reading something about it. Uh, And Heroku absolutely falls into the category of a product that where the documentation is a crucial part of the experience. Certainly Heroku describes itself as an easy to get started with platform as a service, but even the easiest platform as a service imaginable, no developer could be expected to say, okay, I'm going to get started on this platform. And they just immediately know exactly how to deploy an application on it just because who knows how you deploy an application on any given platform until you read those three or four at least sentences that tell you exactly how to do it. Even in that simplest case for Heroku, that documentation is necessary. We sort of view all of our documentation as the product. Yeah, I think, you know, like from a design perspective, point of view there's never anything more uh humbling or interesting than watching how someone uses a thing that you oh yeah and that's not even in a in a negative or in a critical way just like human human beings are fascinating oh yeah no no it's many ways of you know doing things yes i've definitely i've in in past roles i've run user tests on uh, 
documentation sets that I've uh, been responsible for and and watched in horror as everything that I thought was obvious about how to navigate and and find the information you needed was not at all obvious. And this is not a reflection of who was in the user test at all. Anyone who's run a user test knows that everything you think you know about how people use something is wrong. Yeah, I like that. That's good. And I mean, I think I, I mean, if you put me in front of like, let's say like a different operating system, I feel like the compass just melts. Oh, sure. You know, and I feel like a big part of our industry generally is that is that idea of, of Googling things and knowing what to Google for. So I think that even uh, within areas where you would assume an extreme level of knowledge or, or kind of automatic knowledge, that documentation is still so important because the internet is very big and you ultimately can't keep it all in your head anymore. And I think, I mean, I guess the flip side of that is, is the impact of bad of bad documentation or, or incomplete or uh, outdated documentation. Right. So an adage within technical writing circles is often that incorrect documentation is can be worse than no documentation, uh, depending on how incorrect we're talking. If the instructions for something are so wrong or outdated that they tell the user to do something they can't do, or they tell the user to do something that is actively detrimental, then absolutely that documentation should just be deleted. And to simply have a vacuum that confuses the user because they don't know what to do is better than having a situation where they think they know what to do and do something bad. I think one of the environments that I've noticed that most is probably open source software. Sure. Um, Purely because it's often someone working on it in their personal time. It's it's like if you are writing an API, it's very easy for you to see the blueprint of that in your head, obviously, because you you wrote it, you wrote the API. Mm -hmm. And I think as well, it's hard to find people who are naturally good and enthusiastic about uh, writing documentation, or at least I feel like I notice more and more in open source software that people are, if you really want to get into open source software, help with the docs, because it feels like there is such a uh, opportunity there for people to become more involved in that, in that scene, uh, just purely by virtue of, of how hard it is to find um, people who are willing or have the time or have the energy or have the in- inclination to to really clearly and succinctly document things and how valuable that is uh, for any kind of software project, right? Honestly, that's in the open source community, I believe, uh, recommended as maybe a first pull request you could send on a project is simply oh. to uh, improve the readme or the wiki pages on that GitHub project just because it shows, one, that you are interested in working on the project, two, it's easier to maybe correct or improve English text than it is to improve source code if you're just getting started with the project because maybe you need to familiarize yourself with it. And a big part of familiarizing yourself with it is onboarding by reading that documentation in the first place. So sure, some projects have wonderful documentation. Uh, and I think documentation for open source projects across the board would be all the more wonderful if as every person is coming up to speed by reading what they need to, they um, submit at least one pull request that improves what they just read. Um, so, uh, so what are some of the common challenges in documentation coming out of the 
the value of why it's good, the impact of when it's bad. Um, what are the challenges in, in creating and maintaining uh, good documentation? Yeah, there's a few of these that you hear time and again, if you talk to a tech writer at pretty much any organization or the user of any documentation. And I would say that the most frequent of all of them is simply not knowing whether or not a particular document is up to date. Even if you do know whether it's up to date, oftentimes you know definitively that it isn't. And so keeping documentation fresh is a, a real challenge uh, that has no easy answer. And I've seen many different strategies for maintaining it in different organizations. I think it's important to employ strategies no matter what they happen to be. And I also think it's important to acknowledge to yourself, you're never going to keep every single document in your collection perfectly up to date, no matter yeah. how hard you try, uh, just because there's always going to be more to document than you have people to fully document it. And there's always going to be a priority within your organization about which documentation serves the largest percentage of your users. And those documents are just naturally going to get more love. Yeah. And I think that's a challenge as well when you move further out into um, like Heroku has a certain number of, of uh, natively supported languages. Yes. Uh, but then we open up build packs as a way to kind of access other languages. And so I've been doing a lot of Rust stuff lately. I was looking at the documentation for that and it's just, it's just uh, doesn't have, you know, the level of potentially interest maybe, or, you know, comparative to something like, let's say, create React app on in Node, right? Which is like, I think one of the mm. most starred projects in GitHub. So I guess by virtue of the number of people who are involved in a project, and I'm not in any way comparing like a single build pack to one of the largest GitHub <laughs> um, most popular GitHub repos by right. any stretch, but I just think it's a, it's an interesting thing to try and get enough of a critical mass on a project to get that kind of passion or enthusiasm or, or even just like sheer numbers of people using it and commenting on it and reacting to it and trying to make it better or being or feeling like they're a part of it. I think documentation is a really good way to do that, but it's like how do you get people to to write it? You know, the challenge of actually getting people to write documentation is much less of a challenge. If you're in an organization that has a dedicated team of technical writers, because their whole job is to actually write it. So this one oh. is more about situations where you're either talking about open source, as we just described. We could also be talking about internal docs, certainly, where your engineering department has written a collection of services that are serving the internal customers of your employees and you've gotten those services up and running. And now the question is, do you have a readme in the repo for each of those internal apps to describe how they work, what the navigation of the code is and all of this, which would help to onboard, of course, a new engineer on the project and also probably help uh, an SRE team to understand how that project works in the event that something about it happens to break while they're on call. There is a talk that I saw at a conference a few years ago. Uh, the conference is called Write the Docs. And it was a talk by a, a, a senior technical writer at another organization who 
created a pipeline to get engineers to write docs, which after realizing that asking people to write documentation as a completely separate part of their job that had nothing to do with their existing workflow, it was having low returns because adding something to somebody's task list that's orthogonal to what they're usually doing just has an innate resistance to it. I mean, for anyone, I would for, for sure. But what they did was they sort of added some sort of pre, like part of reviewing code, like part of the, you know, the core cycle of reviewing code included a step that said, hey, this change uh, to this code base is larger than X. And there are no changes to any readme files in this in this repo. So I'm spitting out this warning like this. We will let you merge this, but you're violating what is now a policy at this organization, which is um, because you've added this much or changed this many lines of code. You've probably changed something pretty significant about what this app does or how it works. So please update at least one markdown file in this repository. I love it because I am I always leave the oven on. I have this like really frustrating tendency <laughs> of doing it. I did it. I did it this afternoon, and and last night I left the stove on as well. I feel like for some reason I'm not sure how that's going to help with my git commits, but I feel like if there was some way that I could be warned that it's like Charlie, you've had the oven on for like four hours now, and I don't think you're cooking anything anymore. Similarly, would be great. But I feel like it's it's awesome that our tools are starting to prompt these conversations because in a lot of ways documentation is as much about that that like human experience of of making things accessible and making things understandable and and making things um functional as as anything so i don't know there's something very um very cool about those kind of tools stepping in to help uh along the way funny maybe we should get you a, an internet connected stove that can send you an email uh with its current temperature every 30 minutes i would not say no <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would not say no. <laughs> um, another common challenge I think that we've come across, or you and I have discussed in the past, is, is finding things or the findability of documentation. Um, sure. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Yes. <laughs> so this is, I'd say, most mostly comes up internally at, at organizations because almost anything external is findable because of Google. Um, now, even then, sometimes it's important to maintain SEO and make sure that a document that is public facing uses the right terms, I guess, to make sure that if people are searching for it, that they can find it. Uh, but findability is most challenging. I hear the most complaints about it internally because inevitably when your organization reaches a certain size, you're putting documents into 50 different places, depending on which team you're on and what you're doing it for. And when I first joined a previous company, one of the first things I was asked to do was develop the guidelines for where to put documents moving forward. And the idea I think initially was come up with the canonical single place to put documents moving forward. We had a wiki instance and we had Google Docs and we had markdown files and github you know people were saying well i want to i don't know where this team documents this so i go searching in the wiki and i don't find it and i don't i google drive is harder to search than the wiki and 
GitHub. I don't even know which repo this would be in, and it's just a mess. And so I interviewed several people at the company to try and suss out, like, okay, let's say we switched to pretty much putting everything in one place. Where should we put it? And so I would interview people on one team and they'd say, oh, I have to put things in Google Docs because I have real-time collaboration and my whole job is around working together with people in real time. And I said, oh, that's a really good, that's a really good reason to use Google Docs. And then another person said, well, I put everything in the wiki because I need people to be able, the wiki has the best search capability of anything that we have. And I want people to be able to find yeah, search for this. And I said, oh, that's another good reason. Like, okay, well, if I'm doing this whole project because of findability, maybe the wiki is the answer. And then I would talk to the SRE team and they say, absolutely not. We're not putting our run books on the wiki. And I had never worked directly with an SRE team before. And I said, oh, that's a very strong opinion. Why? Like, I, I honestly, I didn't understand why that was such a, would be such a problem. And they said, well, in the event of an outage, there's nothing to say the wiki isn't going to be out. Um, right. So a run book is for anyone that might not. Right. Uh, a run book is a, a set of recipes for a given service that you're company maintains that explains how to do common tasks for it, whether that's deploy it, bring it down, uh, upgrade it, Interesting. Uh, yeah. run a migration, things that, that an SRE team that doesn't directly maintain the code, but is responsible for maintaining uptime across the entire company could consult in order to better understand how to resolve any issues that arise for that service. So in the event of a huge outage for the company, like a, you know, a severe event like that, um, who's to say that the wiki isn't also down? And so they, they kept everything in Markdown in GitHub, well, specifically in repos that they regularly sync so that yeah, right. the documentation is, is replicated across every SRE laptop. And so you know, these are great reasons to have documentation in different places. It does reduce findability because you have to look in X different places instead of one. And those use cases are so real that that in the end, we didn't say like, stop using X, Y, or Z. We said, yeah, use this if you need this, use this if you need this, et cetera. Which makes sense, right? Because I mean, also like the best tools are the ones that people are using and yeah. by the sound of it, it seems infeasible to find something that, that can do everything for everyone. So right. that kind of now, almost fail safe of like having things across different platforms and services gives more yes flexibility almost i don't know if that's the right word but yeah yeah so i will say so for the, anyone listening who's like well that's not that doesn't answer the question i i need help my organization <laughs> i will say this so here's one example of something we did we created a i created a site a page on our wiki called the registry and the registry was a list of every service that ran internally at the organization that linked out to the individual GitHub repos for those services. And so the registry wasn't always 100% up to date, but as one example, at least this allowed somebody to quickly search the wiki for the name of a service, find its registry page, find out where its repo lived, who maintains it according to the you know the wiki, and who to contact in the event of an outage, which at least made it more findable than n different repos on github so sometimes having a hub documentation source like your wiki that links out to everything else at least creates like a 
a, a canonical place to start. And if you can't find something there, then you can start your breadth first search. Okay, so that's so that's some some common challenges and some ways of overcoming them, or at least better understanding them. Do you have a philosophy for how you approach uh, what you document, what you don't document, how you uh, express changes to documentation, all those kinds of things uh, in your day-to-day life? Yeah, totally. Um, our focus is on reflecting the platform and what it does. Historically, we haven't focused as much on documenting, okay, here's how to take all the different parts of our platform and put them together. And we've more recently put out some articles about mixing and matching components of the platform to achieve a certain architecture. But historically, DevCenter has been much more of a a site that says, here is everything that the platform does. Here are all the components of it. Here's what dynos are. Here's what a stack is and allowing you to understand each of those components in isolation, except of course for getting started tutorials, which hopefully walk you through enough of the platform landscape to actually do everything you need to do to get an app up. But our emphasis is always on the reference component of of DevCenter. Uh, it's only more recently that we're we're expanding more into um, combining, mixing, and matching. That's mostly just because the the focus is always on. First, be the canonical truth of the platform, and then second, be the application of the platform. We also maintain something called ChangeLog, and ChangeLog is hosted on DevCenter. It is a sequence of short posts that reflect public-facing changes to the Heroku platform, whether that means updating uh, the versions of Node that we support, whether that means a new version of Postgres, a new feature going live always has at least one changelog entry associated with it or a deprecation of a particular version of X, Y, or Z. We treat changelog entries as moments in time. Uh, The only reason we would edit a changelog entry after the fact uh, somewhere down the line is because we find a typo in it occasionally to fix a broken link that because something else changed, but usually we don't even fix those because we want changelog to reflect what happened then and not so much be something to repeatedly consult sure so it's like a uh like a history book yes exactly so <laughs> you know can... that's the best analogy but anyway i'm gonna go with that <laughs> yeah yeah so you can just sort of it's it's nice that you can just sort of scroll through it if you haven't before just to like get an idea of like the cadence of how we change things and what we change and maybe you know even get an idea for like how quickly we'll update to a new version of a programming language after that programming language or that version became uh you know generally available or the the largely accepted new standard, which, yeah. uh, spoiler alert, is fast. Uh, one thing I think that could potentially be interesting as well as like what we don't uh, consider important to document um, and, and what the rationale behind that would be. So as I mentioned, we, we always do prioritize reflecting the truth of the platform first. So we don't make a conscious choice to avoid documenting how to put things together. As I said, we're, we're doing that more and more. But uh, reference is the most important thing to get right and to have available. So we always focus on that first. In terms of what we don't document, Heroku considers itself to be a very easy platform to get started with in the cloud platform as a service space. Uh, We pride ourselves on that. We pride ourselves on being uh, certainly the first platform that a lot of people get started uh, using at all. 
despite that, we don't consider ourselves responsible for teaching people how to code or program or uh, interesting, yeah. Or use, for example, Git. Um, most of Heroku's deployment methods use Git. And if you aren't at least a little familiar with Git, then uh, her, a lot of Heroku's potential is, is lost. But we don't focus on teaching those concepts because mostly because there are a lot of great resources out there already to teach you version control, to teach you any number of the languages that we support. And so we make an assumption in order just to limit our own scope of responsibility and, and you know keep our heads above water in terms of what we write. We make assumptions about who you are reading our docs and we assume that you know what Git is and that we, we, we certainly, we direct you to install Git in a lot of our getting started tutorials in, in the case that you don't have it installed. We, we assume that you or, you know, know what that is, and we assume that you are capable of programming in at least one of our supported languages. So we're not yeah. in the business of teaching you Ruby. We're in the business of helping you get your Ruby app that you know how to write into the cloud with as little friction as possible. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there are, like you say, there are really good resources. And if you are getting started, you know, I know that in the past we've always recommended that people look at um, tools like Stack Overflow, which has a dedicated Heroku section or, or tag, I think it is, or a label, um, which can help. You know, certainly when I was starting out, I think that checking the logs to understand why an app isn't working, it feels infinitely frustrating, but then also like wonderful when you get to the bottom of the problem. And I think <laughs> I, I definitely hear you on there being resources that have just so many more people that can... Uh, really dedicate their time to, to helping you learn as well, you know? So I think yeah, that's, totally. uh, that makes sense. Yeah, like I just think it's like, it's not our core competency. And there are so right. many people out there that are doing such a good job that that we just sort of say, all right, y'all y'all got this. You know, but a lot of those, actually a lot of coding schools and stuff, you know, when they get to the part, it's like, okay, you've learned how to code. You've learned what these variables do. You've learned how to structure an app. Okay, now it's time to get it in the cloud. A lot of these coding things use Heroku as the first platform to get them to deploy it to again, because it's, it's pretty straightforward and because it's so closely aligned with Git, which is probably the version control system they've used. So like we happen to be part of curricula. Is that the plural? I don't know. But teach coding, even though we ourselves don't really do it. So I guess uh, I'd be curious if there's anything interesting that you think about how we manage uh, our documentation um, or how we do things uh, that might be different or that people find interesting as, as, as part of uh, your role? Yeah. Heroku does one thing very differently from anywhere else I've worked in terms of its public facing documentation, which is that, well, I've worked for a lot of big companies uh, and Heroku is part of Salesforce, which is another big company, but Heroku itself is pretty small. And Heroku is the first company I've worked for where I, as a dev center person, I own, own meaning I'm the primary person responsible for a few articles on dev center, but not that many. And we don't have a team of technical writers dedicated to like writing all the stuff that's on dev center. Instead, our product managers and our language owners, each of those folks owns so the language owners each own the articles that pertain to their language 
and the product managers all own the documentation that pertains to their product surface area. Again, yeah, we don't have dedicated technical writers. And instead, we have a, a process where, you know, they're all very good writers in the lead up to a launch of a new product or the release of a change to one of our languages. If the accompanying documentation changes for that update are sufficiently complex, I simply act as some sort of copy editor and, and structural editor to changes that are being made by somebody who's closer to the subject matter expert than they are to a dedicated writer. So this model has certain benefits and certain drawbacks. So I'm not saying that it's perfect and that teams should switch this ownership model, uh, but it is a, an interesting change of pace. And I think it's pretty cool for a product that has a pretty reasonable total documentation surface area. So Salesforce proper has, one might argue, an unreasonably large product surface area in that Salesforce offers everything under the sun. So of course it needs a team of technical writers. Heroku, as an individual product, is a complex product, but it has a pretty def well-defined scope of what it does. And as such, it can more reasonably be documented by the people who own the components of the platform, and it doesn't need to be distributed to an army of writers instead. Yeah, absolutely. I, was, I must admit, when I joined Heroku, I was surprised it is, it is not like enormous, which, which I kind of... yeah. You Isn't know, that, wasn't that weird? Would, yeah, it's super weird. Um, I think one thing that I've noticed personally is that even when I joined, I was encouraged to make to make changes if I saw something or to suggest or to, to be involved in, in our documentation if, if we see something to change, which I think I know that you and I have talked about it in the past that that results in maybe deviations in, in style or in voice. Um, yeah, so that you're absolutely right. Like, Anyone who, any Heroku employee who wants access to Edit Dev Center immediately gets it and is welcome to make changes. Uh, we sort of assume that nobody's going to go in there and just delete all of the text from an article. And even if they did, we'd have a backup. So it's not like that'd be the end of the world. But again, tr updated documentation, I would say, is it's much more delightful to a reader than perfectly consistent styled documentation like oh my god the sentence is so exactly the same in style and tone as the sentence before it that totally makes up for the fact that it's wrong like no that never that's not true like have that sentence be a completely different style of sentence that the other writer would never have written but at least have it give you the right information and so that's why we sort of just have a very democratic like if you see something edit something sort of style well uh i think that's pretty much everything i mean thank you uh for uh taking the time to chat this sounds quite formal but uh you are one of my favorite human beings that i work with so uh, <laughs> well we have to really maintain some it. air of professionalism in this podcast I know, environment I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh secretly outside of it though it's it's all uh jelly beans and parties um <laughs> So I guess one thing I thought would be a good way to to finish up would be maybe some some piece of advice that you that you would want to impart to our dear listeners um, before before we wrap it up. Yeah, sure. Um, I would say, as with any change in organization, if you're thinking about getting more rigorous documentation processes in your organization, like change is resisted 
in 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 all aspects of life, right? It's hard to change humans. So as much as you can, if you want documentation to be more rigorously practiced, the most effective way you can do it is to build it into the workflow that already exists for the people you want to do the documenting. So as much as you can get those two things to align, I think you have the best odds of actually getting people to do it. I would also say like, whenever you have a new employee, a new employee is an unbelievable resource for documentation because they have to get up to speed. They're going to be reading the documentation anyway. You might as well formalize their onboarding to include a part where they basically have to, because it's now their job, write down and note anything that they experienced during their onboarding of reading the product documentation for the product they're now helping build that Mm. was wrong. Or they could have been more clear because they're coming at it with fresh eyes and you can make them do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the secret. I like that comes back to the common challenge of actually getting people to write it is to like make it part of the job. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Right. Like just like fold it on in there. People won't even realize they're doing it. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and our uh, dear listeners. You've been uh, listening to Codish. Uh, I'm Charlie Gleason. Uh, My guest has been Stephen Barlow. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.